This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is sponsored by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Get a free 30-day trial by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, April 9th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's been a geographic question in the news lately, and I want to address it. It's a question of geography or, or possibly cartography. Here, Governor Mike Pence poses the question. Is tolerance a two-way street or not? And then former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum faced the nation a couple days ago. He asked the nation to face this fact. Tolerance is a two-way street. I want to go back a year when on MSNBC, Jonathan Capehart, talking about gay football player Michael Sam, said the opposite. But tolerance, no, is not a, it should not be a two-way street. It's a one-way street. Okay, this is a good question. As we just heard, it's a live question. I've been pondering this question for a while. Then I read about some amicus briefs filed in the upcoming gay rights case before the Supreme Court. A bunch of liberal law professors have argued, look beyond our borders. There are about 20 countries that allow same-sex marriage. And a bunch of conservative law professors have argued, look beyond our borders. There are only 20 countries that have allowed same-sex marriage. So, to find the answer to the question, is tolerance a two-way street, I looked internationally, and the answer is yes. Yes, it is. Tolerance Road in Cape Town, South Africa, is literally a two-way street. Tolerance Street in Marrakesh, Morocco, also a two-way street. And it is located near a street called Justice, which, be warned, Justice features a blind driveway. Rue des Tolerances in France, a two-way street. Route des Tolerances in Quebec, Canada, a two-way street. I've found the best example of tolerance being a two-way street. This is in Mauritius. Tolerance is not only a two-way street, it intersects with Gandhi Avenue, and there is a school, the Kendo's Government School, on the corner of Tolerance and Gandhi. They must have a terrible football team. I don't think American football is that popular in Mauritius. Now, as for the United States, I found that Tolerance Court in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, is a two-way street. However, in Tom's River, Tolerance Court there is not a two-way street. It's like one of these one of these circular things around a tree. It's a court, so you have to get out, but I think you can only go one way around the tree. So there we have it. For almost every example in the world, tolerance is a two-way street, except in New Jersey. But since this is New Jersey, it just might be the case that tolerance is actually a jug handle. And that, by the way, is also the title of a Lost to Springsteen song, Tolerance is a Jug Handle. It replaced Rosalita for a time in the live set during the Darkness Tour. On the show today, I spiel about the idiots intent on aiding ISIS. But first, Kevin Allison engages in risk, all for our entertainment. (laughs) 
Kevin Allison is here. He is the MC, the, uh, well, on the podcast, he's literally the host, but he sort of finds the talent for the podcast risk, exclamation point. And all five of those symbols are important because this storytelling podcast is about risk with an exclamation point. <laughs> Kevin Allison uh, curates this series and uh, provides his own stories as well. As well and he uh, taps some of the uh, funniest people around. This is not one of those podcast storytelling ventures that revels in the drudgery or revels in too much maudlin stuff. It's a great podcast. Third season begins. Kevin Allison is here. Hello, Kevin. Hey. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Learning how to speak today. Yes, get that mouth. In do you do, did you ever do any? Do you do any uh, loosen up the jaw exercises? I don't. I don't. I took classes on that once, but yeah. I've never done it's it. It's probably smart. It just seems like of all the things that you could do to help yourself, it would be among the most helpful. Probably, mm-hmm. but among the most embarrassing, certainly. Yeah, me, for sure. Me, my, mo, <laughs> Yeah. And so, where did it start? Before it was a podcast, was it a live show? I thought that it should be a podcast. I spent 12 years after my comedy group, The State, broke up, basically just failing and failing, just not knowing what to do with myself. I was getting up on stage doing crazy comedy kinds of characters, telling stories. You know, kind of. I, I, I saw like Andy Kaufman as sort of a role model, which is always a bad idea. Uh, but... That didn't get me anywhere until 2008, Michael Ian Black, who was a member of the state, said, you should just tell your own stories. And I said, yeah, but I'm so weird. I'm so kinky and gay and absurdist and all these things that I thought Hollywood would just not like. And, but he was like, you know, if it feels risky to you, it's probably going to work. So I said, all right. I'll force myself to learn how to tell true stories by creating a podcast. So in August of 2009, we had the first live show. We recorded it, and we were up. The first podcast episode was up in October of 2009. The most recent episode, or at least the most recent one in my feed, is the best of. Uh, there, there are two best ofs that mm-hmm. you have and this mm-hmm. is best of number one and you introduce michael ian black doing his story about getting high in amsterdam mm-hmm. which seems like the least interesting or risky story but the way he tells it and how he does it <laughs> and the fact that he had never been high before is great and you said that it was you credited as you did here you credited michael ian black and the phrase you used was he told you to drop the act yeah. now does that mean the actual comedy act you were doing or was there more of an act in real life that he was advising you to drop oh well you know yeah i i, I think that i i think it went both ways i think it was start learning how to just be yourself as you, you are your voice you know your 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 comedic voice should just be your real voice the first risky story that i told after he gave me that advice i went to a show at UCB uh here in new york and told a story about the first time i tried prostituting myself which Turns out I was not cut out for that line of work. I guess that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of a comedy of errors, but it felt super risky to be telling that story. And afterwards, I was like, he was right. That felt so good. That You know, the connection with the audience was so real. So we created the podcast. And, you know, at first there were a lot of people like Margaret Cho and Mark Maron and Sarah Silverman who wanted to do it because it was kind of down their alley. Yeah. And, you know, I yeah. knew them from way back when. I mean, these guys who do heightened versions of their selves on stage Already. all the time. Maybe not in storytelling form. But, mm-hmm. yeah, when you watch Mark Maron, you know you're getting a lot of what Mark Maron's really like. Exactly. Yeah. But the audience of Risk started writing in, oh, my gosh, I want to tell a story about this, that, and the other. So what I realized was... 
I could make this podcast go anywhere that play that storytelling shows on NPR could not go. Right. Like people could talk about things like being molested as a kid or trying to murder their mother or something like that and get really emotionally raw in a way that the mod can't do because they've got to make a show that people can drive their kids to soccer practice yes. listening yes. to. And she's like, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't feel anything. It's not working. She goes, it's just, try it again. I'm like, yeah. It's not working. And she's like, well, I'm a high. <laughs> I, I'm not. It's not working. Pot doesn't work on me. And Dad said, listen, I, I can see you've seen these knives, and here's what I want to talk to you about. Duffy, this, this is for you. There's, a, there's been a problem. I think we can all sense it. There's, there's just, there's too many men in the house. There's not enough room for the both of us. One of us has to go. It's not going to be me. I can tell you that much. So I would like to challenge you to a duel. I would like you to take any knife you want. We'll go down to the basement, have it out like two, two, two gentlemen, and one of us will come up. When you look back in your career and how you and the other members of the state, and if people don't know, this was this uh, seminal MTV founder, you're a bunch of NYU students mm-hmm. who were doing sketch comedy, a little bit before the whole sketch boom happened. I think it helped usher in the sketch boom, and, mm-hmm. and people look back on those uh, shows as pretty daring and groundbreaking. Was this your niche within the state? Did you always, were you compelled to like, let's tell a story in the sketches, let's go long? I mean, some of those guys have gone on to be authors, some of those guys mostly actors, a bunch of those guys directors. What was your role there? You know, it's really funny because I was always a few, I was the only gay guy in a group of 11. It was ten, 11 NYU students. Yeah. That's got to be a record. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it was 10 guys, one girl, and I was the only gay guy. And I was always do, doing weird things with my social life that no one else was doing. They were always hanging out with each other. And I was, you know, at the places, you know, sub-basements in in the meatpacking district. I proposed to the group when we went to MTV that we should have something called check-in, that in the morning (laughs) we should should let go of all the roasting and just, like, emote for a little bit. So for a half hour we'd all tell our stories of where we were, and everyone was always like, Kevin's got the best (laughs) check-ins. And then when it came to sketches, mine were always, I was kind of like, I always think of Mel Brooks in um, your show of shows, because those writers used to always love his sketches, but they'd never put them on the show because they were just so weird. Well, that's the, that's the, you know, (laughs) comics, comic curse, right? Popular, (laughs) to be popular among the comedians usually means you're surprising them. And if you surprise a comedian who knows where the joke's coming, you're doing something crazy. Or you're Mel Brooks, the greatest comic genius of a generation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it turned out I wasn't Mel Brooks. <laughs> you ever talk to Scott Thompson, Kids in the Hall? You have the only gay guy in a sketch group thing going. Oh my gosh, I met him just once very briefly when the rest of the state, uh, several of us had dinner with several of them when the state did MTV's spring break yeah. one year. Yeah, oh my God. Oh, that was a crazy weekend. But, Where was it? Was it Daytona then? Uh, I think somewhere near Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard that he has an amazing story about being super, super drunk at an all-nude male beach house somewhere, and I have to get that story for Risk. 
Are there other white whales out there? Are there ones that you're chasing down? Oh my gosh! Yeah, so many. Uh, you you mean you mean like uh, story wise or just people? Like you heard that this guy has this great story, and if you could turn that onto risk, like oh, you have your risk wish list. Yes, there 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 is a guy that I I know of who uh, who was a lifeguard and deliberately let someone drown because that person was an ass. <laughs> It's yeah. very it's very hard to get some stories because you know legality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. That's a good one. It wasn't Scott Thompson though. No. <laughs> that would be great. At that gay beach house. <laughs> All right. I want to play. I want to play one moment that I thought was so delightful. The story a story of an untimely call of nature, a date. Who's who's telling this story? <laughs> is this 80 Miles? Yes. Oh, this is great. Yeah, 80 is the uh, head writer for Fallon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. He w- had a huge crush on this girl. It was when he was very new to New York, very young kid, college-age kid, I think. Had a huge crush on this girl and went to Central Park on a date with her. And I'm not sure how far we... How a far little we, bit. A little, little more. Uh, you got to get to the basically. <laughs> basically, he's there on the lawn having a little picnic with this girl, finally having a date with her, and he he says... Quartz <laughs> shit <laughs> came out of his his uh, pants, and he was able to catch it in his baggy. You know, they we we all wore those ca- kind of like cargo shorts yeah. back then. Yeah. He was able to catch it and kind of scamper away to the bathroom without her noticing. Uh, I, I get most of it taken care of. You know, I'm just like throwing everything into the commode, and uh, I'm starting to get kind of you know like I'm like. I might get out of this situation alive. Just about that time, cops raid the bathroom. Uh, There's been some sort of sting operation uh, where they've uh, arrested a bunch of pot dealers in Central Park. And so they rush into the bathroom and they start screaming, everybody out, everybody in the bathroom out, all civilians out of the bathroom. And they're like throwing up criminals against the wall and frisking them and screaming and everything. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I still have a major mess to clean up. So I get, I get as much of it cleaned up as I possibly can. I pull my, my uh, shorts up to my nipples and I untuck my t-shirt down so it hangs down below the stain uh, on the back of my pants. And it looks like I'm wearing a dress, but you can't see the big diarrhea stain in my britches anymore. Uh, and so when I've got myself pretty much together, I walk out, the cops completely flip out. There's criminals everywhere. They're like, we told everybody to get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? You want to get arrested? And I was like, no, I don't. I just want to get out of here. Go back to my date. Um, Did you hear that? Did you hear the guy in the audience? I can play it again. I'm pretty sure. And this, I just freaking love this. I'm spending so long on this tiny little thing. I think a guy in the audience says, date because the humor of him still thinking that this is a date he has been talking for 20 minutes of just about defecation and it hits this guy oh my god you you're still, still care on about the date I, I think we hear him say date let's say it again go back to my date <laughs> I hear a guy say date <laughs> and that that's when you know you connect to an audience member uh, that is it yeah. I just want to go back to my date <laughs> Kevin Allison is the man behind Risk True Tales, Boldly Told. It's on the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. Third season begins forthwith. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. 
think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. I mean, lots of hassle. You probably hate your coworkers. You'd like if they were in another room or maybe another state. Or maybe you love them, but you can't fly them in all the time. That'll break the budget. My recommendation, Citrix, go to meeting because there is a smarter way to meet. Go to meeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you are, because go to meeting works from any computer or a tablet or a smartphone. You know, all the stuff we mean when we say computers, all right, not necessarily refrigerators, they have computers too. But, you know, if there's a little camera on it, you can meet through it. Your team can join by clicking a link, no signups, no speed bumps, turn on your webcam. There's HD quality involved. It's like being in the room. Unless these other people smell, then it's not like being in the room. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing so your team can get on the same page. If you'd like to sign up for GoToMeeting today, here's what you do. Try it free for 30 days. There is nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com. Click the Try It Free button. If you do it now, you can have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel. Is this guy for real? Joshua Van Hafter has been detained and charged with trying to aid a terrorist group, namely ISIS. The Wisconsin native was arrested at O'Hare Airport last night. He's in Wisconsin court today to be charged. Now, he did fly to Turkey. It doesn't seem that he joined ISIS. And while the intention to join ISIS alone is and should be a crime, we seem to have in Van Haften a stupid loser who couldn't even get his act together enough to join a militant group that might actually prize him more as a hostage than as a combatant. Now, Fox News describes Van Haften with these words. This is the nightmare scenario in terms of having a U.S. national leave the United States, as the FBI says Joshua Ray Van Haften did on August 26, 2014, about seven or eight months ago. He headed for Turkey, and Turkey is obviously that very porous border region. But check out some of the details on this nefarious Mr. Hafton. His former roommate told FBI officers that he made comments referring to jihad. When asked to explain what he meant, the complainant says Van Haften folded a $100 bill to make it look like the Twin Towers. What? How is this even possible? First of all, there are two towers, Twin Towers. So I had to fold $100 bill to look like the Twin Towers. And the Twin Towers are as undifferentiated a piece of architecture as there ever was. The complaint goes on to explain that Van Haften folded another $100 bill to look like a missile. Missiles, I want to note, are not the things that took down the Twin Towers. Is this guy a jihadist or an origamist? I don't know. I do know that he's a sex offender. I do know that he left the country to join ISIS. I do know that a 30-year-old Philadelphia woman is on trial for planning to travel to Syria. I do know there are about 25 Americans currently charged with trying to support ISIS. They all seem stupid. They're all bragging on Twitter. They have no training. They chat with undercover FBI agents willy-nilly. And notably, ISIS doesn't seem to want them. For the record, all these arrests, actually, they, they, they all seem fine with me. Maybe some information's been withheld or exaggerated. From what I've read, none of these would-be jihadis seem actually plausible or potent enough to do something really harmful. Of course, you know, if you look back at the history of Americans detained trying to aid terrorism, some of them do seem pretty scary, but some of them don't. It's been a decade since the spate of post 9-11 prosecutions, and at least a couple of those cases seem to be where law enforcement was plucking the droopiest hanging fruit and calling it a harvest. 
Remember the Liberty Seven? These were Miami men who were caught accepting aid from an undercover FBI informant. They had three trials because the jury deadlocked on two. The group's leader was sentenced to 13 and a half years eventually. The four others or four other four others got multi-year sentences. But their plan, their plan was to bring down, blow up the Sears Tower to then wage a ground war against America, to form a religion that was a mix of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They did accept a $50,000 cash payment. They did accept jumpsuits, jumpsuits from an undercover FBI informant. They declined the offer of weapons. They had no actual contact with Al-Qaeda. And, well, let's let Rich Scroble, Fox News terrorism expert, fill in the rest. Well... After 9-11, it's hard not to take any threat that's received not credible. Um, if the FBI would have, or any other intelligence agency or law enforcement agency, would have discounted this and said, these individuals are not capable of this, well, how are they to know whether a group is capable or not capable? They were already predisposed, that I mentioned earlier, to want to carry out these attacks. They were wanting to go in and, and tear down the, the, the tower, shoot people as they were running from it, and empoison individuals in salt shakers. So let's say, hypothetically, they had run into a real al-Qaeda operative who was willing to fund them, who was willing to assist them in um, actually obtaining their goals. That's what we need to be worried about is if these groups were not infiltrated, would they be able to hook up with other known terrorist groups? Yeah. Oh, by the way, yes. He did say part of their plot was to poison salt shakers. I will acknowledge that if you told me what the 9-11 plot was on 9-10, that would sound far-fetched too. And of course it happened. But the terrorists there were much, much further along in their planning, much more devoted, much more serious than these jumpsuited would-be jihadis, these salt shaker sociopaths. Let's take the case of Shawar Siraj. Siraj was a dopey 23-year-old who worked in the family's Islamic bookstore in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. In 2004, when it was actually 22, he befriended a 19-year-old named James El Shafay. El Shafay was overweight, disheveled, having completed only as far as the ninth grade. El Shafay was taking medication for schizophrenia. He was the government's star witness against Siraj. The two had planned to bomb the New York subway. Well, plan might be strong. Their anti-U.S. conversations drew the attention of a 50-year-old guy who was really an FBI informant named Osama Eldawudi. Eldawudi told the two younger men that Al-Qaeda would be interested in funding them. He drove them to Midtown Manhattan where they cased a subway station. At that point, Siraj said he couldn't go through with the bombing. Not that he actually had bombs or any way to get bombs, but he did say he could be a lookout for this plan. He was arrested six days later. His younger friend turned state's evidence. He walked. Siraj was convicted. The charge was terrorism conspiracy. He's serving 30 years. Elder Woody, the older man, the 50-year-old FBI informant, it emerged a trial, was paid $100,000 during his two years and three months as an FBI informant, and Siraj was his biggest catch. ISIS... It's real. It's a threat. Al-Qaeda was a threat. Still is. Westerners are an asset to ISIS. I'm glad law enforcement is stemming the flow. And that's stupid, naive losers. Actually, even if they're stupid and naive, they sometimes do commit acts of terror and kill lots of people. But it is such a temptation to trumpet the arrests of the harmless or the easily ignored or the maybe even entrapped as a great blow against this great threat. Sometimes the greatest harm these ne'er-do-wells pose is to convince us that their arrests represent anything close to a safer world. 
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, grew up on Bonhami Boulevard. Joel Meyer, the just managing editor, is a habitué of Congeniality Trail, which washes out during the rainy season. Guests of the gist stay at the Courtyard by Marriott. Not actually a hotel, actually a courtyard by an actual Marriott. The Gist executive producer is Andy Bowers. You could find him on Easy Street, not to be confused with E Street or Z Street, which has since been renamed Sully Sullenberger Boulevard. The Gist, your audio accompaniment on highways and byways. Actually, just the byways, not the highways. Screw the highways. You know what I'm saying? We're a byway kind of listen, by the way. And thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hi, Carrie. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Hey, Rachel. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR and Slate, The The Checkup. In our latest episode, Grossology. And how gross are we talking? Stuff like fecal transplants, letting your kids get really, really dirty, and the vaginal schmear. Let's not go there yet. Okay. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply.